From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, this is Zach Beecham, and I'm a senior correspondent at Vox who covers global politics, ideology, and democracy. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Ten years ago, the internet was supposed to be a tremendous challenge for dictators. People thought it would be this unstoppable force, freeing information giving protesters an ability to organize in a way that they didn't have previously and governments couldn't compete with. But that's not actually what happened. Instead, authoritarians flipped the script. They figured out a way to turn the web into an even more effective tool for maintaining their hold on power and repressing their citizens. So like, how did that happen? How did things work out this way? That question is at the heart of a new book by Stephen Feldstein. Stephen's a Carnegie Endowment senior fellow, and he's the author of The Rise of Digital Repression. It's a book that examines the many tools authoritarian regimes and anti-democratic populists have developed for silencing dissent. These are tools ranging from surveillance to censorship to disinformation, and they've all been used in a kind of effective cocktail to disarm anti-government and pro-democracy political movements around the world. And now understanding how this operates, how the internet has become a tool of repression, is crucial to understanding what's going to happen to democracy in an increasingly digital century. Stephen's book's a really great guide to what's gone wrong, and I'm really excited to have him on the show to talk about it. Stephen, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Stephen, I guess I want to start by questioning my own premise here, right? Because I just said a second ago that this is a new kind of repression, but is it is digital repression, as you term it in the book, really new exactly? Like, is there a good reason to think about it as something distinct from plain old repression, like firing on crowds of protesters? Like, what what makes this worthwhile to think about as a unique category of thing? Right. No, that's a great question. And there's a couple ways to kind of think about it. On the one hand, the idea that governments would manipulate information, use propaganda to push their narratives, or even rely on surveillance is something that has happened for decades. Uh, And you can look back at many authoritarian regimes in the past, uh, whether it's the Stasi in East Germany or the the old Soviet Union or, you know, the Chinese Communist Party. These are tactics that have been honed for decades. But I think what makes this current set of instruments different is that, first of all, our lives are much more digital than they've ever been. We rely on the Internet to communicate, to conduct transactions and so forth. Uh, We use smartphones in ways that are unprecedented in terms of our history. And so as a result, there are new tools that are more intrusive that monitor what we talk about, how we organize, 
that really bring at scale the ability of governments to deploy capabilities of censorship, surveillance, blocking, and so forth, uh, that I think give new ways for them to really suppress dissent and to try to control their information environments. Let's talk about some of these categories, right, that you set up in the book. Propaganda, for example, is something that has existed, you know, basically forever, right? As long as there have been political factions that want to influence people through information, they've used false information to do so. But there's something, it seems, in what you just said about the digital realm that makes it particularly vulnerable to the spread of propaganda. Is it just that things get around the internet so quickly? Is it that there's something else, some other feature that, that makes it easier to clog up with traffic? Yeah, well, you know, I think one thing that's really important, one new element is the pervasiveness of platforms and how they reach people. In the book, one of the chapters I profile is in the Philippines. And in the Philippines, the head of state there, Rodrigo Duterte, has really perfected the use of disinformation as a way not only to promote his preferred narratives, but also as a means to tamp down, harass, and intimidate his critics. Now, the thing about the Philippines is that something like 97% of the population uh, uses Facebook on a regular basis. So that means that if you're able to manipulate the environment on Facebook in terms of what people see and what they react to, you're essentially able to access most of the adult age population in the country in very insidious ways. And if, if you're able to perfect that manipulation, then that as a tool of coercion, as a tool of rule, is extremely powerful and more powerful than we've seen, I think, when it comes to propaganda as it's traditionally been used in other authoritarian contexts. I want to talk more in depth about the Philippines a little bit later on in our conversation, but what you're describing in sort of more abstract terms is a kind of like hacking of the mind, right? It's not that, you know, he's banning large numbers of websites from being accessed or preventing protesters or, or newspapers who hate him from publishing. It's that governments who use the internet for propaganda have figured out a way to convince people that what they're hearing is true and authentic by use of digital tools in a way that was much, much, much harder to do prior to the advent of internet technologies. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, I think what also is interesting, though, is that there's very much a human enterprise behind it. So in terms of Duterte's disinformation machine, uh, I mean, it's made up of hundreds, if not thousands of individuals who are constantly promoting and putting out content that hits upon the right narratives. In addition, the people who are targeted, the critics of the government, they're not just targeted online through disinformation, they're actually matched with a legal persecution strategy. So that if you have prominent voices like the journalist Maria Ressa in the Philippines, who are outspoken critics of Duterte, she's also facing criminal charges and now uh, potentially a prison sentence as well. So they try to match both traditional repression combined with, you know, as you said, sort of the hacking of the mind, disinformation techniques. And when they come together, it becomes a pretty, uh, pretty potent cocktail. So it seems to me that the country that has most perfected strategies of digital repression is not far from the Philippines. It's China. And it's sort of really the epicenter of using digital technologies to control the population and prevent, in particular, dissent from the Chinese Communist Party's line internally. What is it about the Chinese state that has made it so good at developing tools for controlling people? And, and what are those tools? Well, part of the, the issue with China is that, you know, they've really invested a tremendous amount in a coercive apparatus. So they have set up an environment 
that is walled off from other types of applications that has essentially developed Chinese platforms that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, can control. So part one of their whole strategy is create an environment that they can control, where they can call the shots and make sure that the platforms that are used are platforms that will allow them to surveil citizens as they like, to censor and block content that they find uh, is not preferred. Keep investing money in these techniques, right? So once you create the permissive environment that allows for surveillance and censorship and disinformation to run, then invest in more sophisticated tools so that you can block uh, messages before they're read by anyone, that you can block websites as you choose. And so that's really part of the whole machinery there. It's not just that you know they have an environment where things are closed off from the rest of the world, but they've really invested a lot in cutting-edge technology to keep perfecting the means by which they implement and use these digital technologies. There's a concept you have in the book called the digital dictator's dilemma. And the argument here, it's a variant on a traditional concept called the dictator's dilemma, which is that repression has trade-off costs for dictators, but they need it to stay in power. In, in the digital context, it's that if you limit people's access to the internet, you necessarily lose out on the benefits of having widespread internet access, most notably, though not exclusively, economic growth, right? You know, it's really, really, really helpful in the digital age to have a population that's very plugged in. But China doesn't seem to be suffering from this, or maybe they are, right? And we just can't tell that their really impressive growth numbers are some combination of inflated or lower than they should be if they had a more open internet. Or maybe it's possible that creating your own walled garden internet where people participate on your own proprietary censored platforms actually solves a lot of the problems here. Like, tell me, how, how does this dilemma apply to such a large and massive economy? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, when it comes to the dictator's digital dilemma, most countries don't have the kind of outs that China does. So if you look at places like Thailand, where, you know, they have access or domestic capabilities to a certain extent, but they really rely upon the broader international market in which to foster economic growth. In China, they don't have those same problems because, one, Companies will want to work in China regardless of the restrictions, at least up to a certain point, because the market's so big. And two, China can make up for the lack of certain platforms or programs or applications by creating its own, which is precisely what it's done. So China is an anomaly in a way because it has, you know, 1.4 billion people. It has an advanced, highly industrialized economy. Uh, and it's one that companies want to work in even with the constraints in place for the most part. So they found a way to get around the dictator's digital dilemma, uh, at least for now. Now, I think a good question you've raised and, and, and one we could ask is what if they didn't have these controls? You know, what kind of economic growth, what kind of prosperity potentially would they have? What do they sacrifice as a result of that? And that's hard to know. You talk about repression as having informational costs, not just economic costs, which means that Governments need to get signals about what's going wrong inside their country in order to understand what they need to fix to prevent there from being some kind of popular uprising or discontent or disaster that undermines their rule and power. Even if you only care about maintaining your control as a leader, you still want to know what's bothering the population and what's wrong in society. It, it seems like – based on the way that China conducts itself on you know, its proprietary platforms like Weibo, that allows a limited amount of dissent 
and complaining basically about things that are wrong so it can get these informational benefits. But at the same time, you know, if you're going to talk about Tiananmen Square, you're still going to get in a lot of trouble with the government. So it combines that with a repression of outright seditious or revolutionary statements. I just don't know how long they can maintain this balance and continue to reap the benefits, right? Like after a certain point, I feel like you're going to edge too far in one direction where you're going to permit too much dissent and allow uh, an anti-government movement to get more legs than it should otherwise, or you're going to repress too much and they're going to miss something really huge that ends up having a fairly significant impact on the CCP's legitimacy or the foundations of its rule. Well, it's a very fine-tuned balance that the CCP in China has to play in terms of allowing a bit of both, both having enough information that is free-flowing so they can more realistically understand people's sentiments and what's bothering them, while at the same time tamping down on the, the most significant issues so it doesn't all of a sudden morph into a large amount of dissent that challenges the party. And they're constantly calibrating that balance. And so, for example, at times certain issues are allowed to sort of fester. You know, when people are upset about environmental issues, pollution and whatnot, that's something that for the most part, especially at a local level, the CCP tolerates. But when it gets too wide, when when the protests or the criticisms become too significant, that's when they start to tamp it down. So there's a constant shift in terms of this is allowed, this is not. You can talk about it in certain ways, but not use these words. Uh, And that's how they at least try for the moment to sort of you know, surf this wave of just enough criticism to understand what people are thinking, but not so much that it actually challenges the power of the state. But it's a tricky balance. It's a fine balance. No question about that. It's also one that's implicated by events outside China, or at least outside mainland China. Right? There are real concerns, for example, about the independent status of Hong Kong, which China has increasingly cracked down on in their traditional, much more free approach to the internet, but even more broadly internationally. Eventually, if China wants to do business in a global economy, some of its citizens are going to need to be plugged into the outside world. And that means that they're going to need to, to a degree, access the informational environment outside China's sort of walled garden internet and learn about the world, which suggests to me that it's it's in China's interest to try to export its digital repression techniques and get other countries, or at least other like-minded authoritarian countries, to try their own versions of of digital repression to ensure that it's possible to do business in a global, more authoritarian world without anyone being too directly affected by seditious or, or liberal ideas that are floating around the internet. To what extent has China actually succeeded about doing that? There's There's some data in the book suggesting that either it's not trying that hard or it is not doing a very good job at getting other countries to adopt similar models. Yeah, no, this is one of the big questions that I try to explore in the book because, you know, there's, a, I think, a, a wide narrative, you know, that's a little bit speculative that sort of says essentially that China is trying to export these tools as a means to cultivate allies who see things in authoritarian ways or at least will tolerate and not push back against the authoritarian values in China. I mean, you know, if, if Chinese leaders could wave a, a magic wand and dispense with all the pushback they get from democracies and have everyone sort of see things their way. I'm sure they would. Short of that, there are other aspects to which, you know, I think China would like to see its technology adopted more widely so it doesn't have to deal with the kind of tension and pushback that you mentioned. But, you know, I just didn't see it in my field research when I talked to different countries. I mean, I think for one, 
you sort of have to ask, to what extent is WeChat or some of these other platforms, Weibo, really used in a significant way outside China, at least as it relates to citizens who are not Chinese? And it's just, it, you know, the take up is still limited. Uh, I mean, it really pales in comparison to Facebook and Instagram and some of the other U.S. platforms that are out there. And then second, you know, there's a lot of question, well, is China exporting surveillance technology to fellow autocrats to help bolster those leaders in places like Pakistan or Kazakhstan? You know, and again, the answer was mixed. I mean, certainly those products are available and the leaders and governments can access them at, at lower cost if they so desire. But China really wasn't pushing this technology any more so than other countries are pushing you know, advanced surveillance or censorship technologies to different countries. In fact, what I saw when I spoke on the ground to intelligence officials, government officials, and others was that there are many other factors at play that were much more determinative in terms of whether they would choose to purchase a surveillance system or use it than just the fact that China was trying to market a particular product. You have to look at local factors on the ground as a starting point to understand the motivations about why particular countries or governments would choose to acquire certain technologies or not. Now, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture here, though, because while it's the case that China isn't doing a great job at creating a, you know, an authoritarian global internet, it still is the case that authoritarian states are doing a pretty good job using just the regular internet for their own repressive purposes. Yeah, that's right. And there's a you know a variety of ways that that's happening. And there's a couple really interesting facets to it. So one of which is that, I mean, the internet itself is a great way for governments to surveil their people, right? So think about social media and what people post and who they connect to. I mean, there are lots of easy ways and more complex ways to use social media surveillance to track the types of people who represent challenges to governments. And they do that throughout. And they use pretty advanced I mean, even artificial intelligence technologies to really track at a mass level what people are saying, what kind of dissent is bubbling up. So that's kind of one thing. I mean, you, you know, why not use a regular internet for surveillance if it offers you these capabilities? The second thing is that a lot of countries are putting in place restrictions. You know, they're not Chinese level restrictions in terms of how people use the internet. But, you know, look at a country like India and its recent developments with COVID-19 and how the Modi government has ordered Twitter to take down a lot of content that's critical of the government's response uh, to COVID. I mean, this is new. It's coming from a democracy. And it's a far cry from the free and open, interoperable internet that we espouse in the United States and other liberal democracies. So they, these kind of constraints are happening around the world, not at China levels, but they're certainly occurring. So let's take a quick break, but when we're back, we're going to talk about a group of countries that are technically democracies, but seem to be creeping their way towards authoritarianism. Backsliding is the term, away from democracy. And digital repression seems to be playing a pretty significant part. Stephen Feldstein and I will talk about what's going on with this group and what countries are especially concerning. For instance, the Philippines with its strongman leader, Rodrigo Duterte, and the United States. That's after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, 
When you hear Secret Sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with Wise. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com, wise.com. We've been focusing on China and sort of traditional authoritarian regimes so far, but I, I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about a category that encompasses two of the countries we've already mentioned, which are India and the Philippines. And that's the category of, of backsliding democracies or, in some cases, electoral authoritarian countries. It's a political science category. It's a very broad one, and those two categories are themselves distinct in a lot of ways. But basically, it just means countries that were starting from a democratic baseline, a relatively higher one, and have moved backwards to the point where some of them still have free elections of a sort. They still have competition, multiple parties, but it's very unfair. It's almost impossible to defeat the incumbent party in an actual election because they've rigged the system so much in, in their own favor. This is a hybrid category. It encompasses everything from the United States, which has experienced some backsliding despite still being, broadly speaking, a liberal democracy where the incumbent just lost. And it goes all the way to Hungary, which is, for all intents and purposes, a competitive authoritarian system where it's nearly impossible to defeat the ruling party in elections without some kind of overwhelming effort from the opposition. How effective is digital repression for this category of ruler, for, for a would-be autocrat in a democratic system trying to push the system in their favor? Yeah, no, this it's, it's a really effective set of methods. And there's a couple particular strategies that I think offer a lot of use. So I think, you know, one of them is what we talked about a little earlier. It's, you know, really taking disinformation at scale and pioneering new techniques that not only you know, present and push out narratives that favor the ruling party, but also disparage, flood out, and suppress 
what opposition politicians will say. And so it's really sort of tilting the information environment in such a significant way that it makes it a completely unfair fight. And so when you get to elections, you're not even talking about the same set of facts in any realistic manner. But, you know, in addition, what's also useful about digital techniques is that you can get away with a lot more than if you were using equivalent traditional methods. So, for example, if let's say you want to silence a certain type of criticism in the past, normally that would mean probably imprisoning a significant number of people. And that kind of action will get public backlash, particularly if you're in a semi open environment. It makes it really hard to do. But using digital techniques and different types of censorship, whether it's ordering Twitter to take down certain content, whether it's selectively blocking certain websites, these are alternative means to accomplish the same goals, but you avoid the kind of public condemnation and the reputational damage that you otherwise would accrue. And that's what makes these tools so insidious, particularly for regimes that can only go so far when it comes to enacting their repressive uh, agendas. You know, to make this a little more concrete, why don't we talk about the Philippines, which you mentioned earlier, right? So current president of the Philippines is Rodrigo Duterte, who is a populist of a type that should be, I think, fairly familiar. His signature issue when he was running for president was a crime and drug epidemic, which he pretty substantially overstated, but ran on a kind of law and order platform. And then since then, has done his best to entrench his leadership as sort of the one man, the big man in charge of the Philippines. To what extent have digital tools, you know, based on your reporting on the ground there, been crucial to cementing his control? To what extent have they actually worked in making the political system, if not uh, unfree, certainly a lot less fair? Well, you know, the, the first point when it comes to digital tools and Duterte is that there's a good question about whether he even would have won the presidency if not for his recognition about the power of Facebook to actually promote his candidacy to begin with. In fact, when Facebook approached all the different Filipino candidates back in 2016 when they were running, he was the only one to take uh, advantage of Facebook's offer to show how the platform could be used for political campaigning. He bought those tools, he invested in them with the small campaign budget he had and began to really build momentum with his populist messaging. And so since he's come into office, you know, he's only deepened that reliance and that use on Facebook and, and you know, and Twitter and, and other platforms uh, to push his messaging. And so what he's done is he's invested in a whole slew of people, digital marketers, from ad executives on down to like fairly low level workers, all of whom are pumping out different messages on a daily, hourly basis that reflect his agenda and what he's looking for. And so far, I mean, we're getting close to the end of his term the approval numbers are, are pretty high. I mean, they're in the 70s and 80% approvals, you know, which for democracies is, is fairly unheard of. So, you know, on the one hand, Filipinos are responding to his messaging. They like his narratives. They like the tough man, strong man image. It's reflected in their continued support for either him, his family, or his preferred candidates. And on the other hand, they're also tolerating some pretty egregious human rights abuses, including, as you mentioned, the war on drugs, which he's continued, and which has led to potentially 30,000 plus extrajudicial killings. I mean, people who are likely innocent, who just because of edicts that come on down are gunned in the street by vigilantes or paramilitaries associated with the Philippines government. I mean, it's really 
quite an enterprise that he's put together top to bottom. But at, at its core, it's undergirded by these digital tools. The point about the drug war, I mean, the scale of it is is mind-boggling, right? Like 30,000 extrajudicial executions, extrajudicial. Like these are the not, – not the ones that are sanctioned by law. That kind of violence – I mean, it is, right, a kind of repression in and of itself. It's targeted nominally at drug dealers, but I wonder to what extent one can say his rule there is enforced through this campaign of killing in addition to it being voluntarily – undergirded by actual democratic sentiment, right? Like, to what extent is, is the digital architecture you were describing directly supplemented by more traditional violent coercion of the type that you just described? Well, I mean, he certainly promoted a culture of fear for those who would push back against him. I mean, there's, without any question, the opposition is pretty broken, and it's happened in fairly short order. But look at what happens to critics of, of the president, whether you're a, a reporter facing petty cyber libel charges, facing years in jail, or an opposition politician like Leila DeLima, who I was able to get an email correspondence and interview in the book, who is sitting in jail, again, on spurious charges. You know, you set an example where you get a few prominent critics in jail, you have a drug war that you're undertaking in an illegal manner uh, with many thousands who are killed, and then you supplement that with a disinformation machine, and all of a sudden you can see how all these different elements come together and you know, really make you question to what extent does democracy exist in a real way in the Philippines at this moment in time. I thought your, your correspondence with the senator was a really uh, vivid scene in the book, right? Because you're, it's not just that you're talking to her and this person who's a political prisoner functionally. It's that there's this image – she's been in jail for a long time, right, of her doing her Senate job while incarcerated. So you have this – I can certainly picture this woman sitting in a jail cell typing out emails and talking to aides somehow and trying to do all the functions of someone who's an opposition figure in a democracy – ironically, given this conversation through some of these digital tools when available, I assume, but trying to do it from prison, from jail. That's not the sort of scene that you see normally in a democracy. And I'm wondering if there are other things that you saw when you were on the ground there that really underscored the way in which the digital has coerced the real, if that makes sense as a phrase. Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing I, I, I want to also just say when it came to my correspondence with Delima was that, you know, I was really surprised by what she said to me in terms of why she thought that these disinformation narratives had had such an effect. She said the poor have age-old grievances about social injustice, but they also don't understand exactly how this technology works. And she just seemed to think like there's this exploitation taking place that has really misled the Filipino people in such a huge way. You know, I also remember a really eye-opening conversation I had with a, a pretty prominent Duterte supporter. And, you know, the more we sort of got into it, the more he started yelling, you know, swear words and, and, and getting fired up and, and just sort of saying, you know, this is my man, the way these other elites act, forget it. This is the person that matters to me. He stands up for me. And it just becomes very uh, separated from the overall politics of what Duterte is actually doing it becomes just such a potent affiliation and identity. And I saw so much of that just in terms of the taxi drivers I spoke to and others on the street, you know, the kind of man in the street type of interviews I had with people when it came to what Duterte means and how much his, you know, sort of digital messaging had really penetrated in in a significant way to ordinary citizens. 
Yeah, that that's what's remarkable to me about it, right? It's not that this happened because he controlled the architecture of the internet in the Philippines. As you say, it started happening before that during the campaign, right? Because he was better at using Facebook than anyone else in the campaign, really the only person to take it seriously. And what it suggests to me, and I think this is a lesson that goes beyond the Philippines, is that it's possible to do a kind of politics that erodes democracy outside of power. You don't actually need to be in office to be undermining the foundations of your country's democracy. And while that maybe was always true, right, you can incite a revolution of some kind that would topple a democratic state, digital tools seem to make it a bit easier, right, because you have this ability to reach and and inflame passions at scale. And if it seems like I'm describing a certain country whose capital is Washington, D.C., well, well, I am, right? Like it's – Donald Trump's out of power, but it seems like a lot of the use of the internet that you were describing by Duterte mirrors the way that Trump and the Republican Party has used the internet in the United States to get out its message, which is often also premised on disinformation. I was just going to say, I think we've been dancing around the issue, but we might as well say it in that there are – huge parallels in terms of Duterte's rise and his reliance on these digital means in which to power his political message and what Donald Trump has similarly done in the United States. And I think what's interesting is that both of them kind of rose from nowhere, you know, in the sense that Donald Trump's candidacy was more or less a joke to begin with. It's not as if he was building his power base for decades with the Republican Party, you know, before rising to power. Likewise with Duterte, I mean, he really was not that well-known before being able to kind of exploit in in a very effective manner social media to power his rise. And so it it is something that I think is almost disorienting in terms of how quickly each one of them was able to co-op existing party organizations and government organs to enact their agenda, probably in ways that even surprised them a little bit in terms of just how effective that has been. Now, the difference between the United States and the Philippines is that you know, we hold different standards because the U.S. is a much stronger liberal democracy, has much more of a tradition of civil liberties. And the Philippines has had strongman rule off and on throughout its history, right? So you'd think that the U.S. would have more resilience to overcome and push back against the type of populist politics that Donald Trump has put forth. And yet, maybe not as much as we would think. Maybe the guardrails of democracy that we think are in place are actually a little more fragile, a little weaker, especially in the face of these digital tools, than we would like to believe. Okay, we're going to take one more short break, but when we come back, the United States can pretty fairly be described as the birthplace of the internet. It's also where big internet giants like Facebook and Twitter came from. So given America's intimate relationship with digital technology and a very high degree of digital literacy in its population, how come online disinformation has bloomed so rapidly here? Why is the U.S. the home of QAnon and things like it? Stephen Feldstein is going to share his take after the break. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. 
Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. One point you make in the book is that part of the problem in the Philippines is that a lot of people were not very digitally literate in the sense that they didn't know to be skeptical of sourcing online and to know what you know a disinformation campaign might look like. And you know, you can say a lot of things about the United States, but in some conventional sense, digital literacy shouldn't be a problem, right? This is more or less where the internet was created. It's always been the epicenter of of the development of the internet. And yet Americans fall for tremendous amounts of disinformation that's proven to be a highly effective tactic for politicians who want to gain power, for the creation of new political movements. Like I would argue that QAnon is functionally an entire uh, pseudo-religion political movement that's oriented around digital misinformation. That's what it, it centers on. That's what it feeds on. It's what it originated out of. It strikes me that familiarity with the internet isn't a cure when there are underlying social problems, like in the U.S., extreme polarization and racial tension, that make people almost want to believe things that come at them from these online sources, no matter how outlandish they may seem to people who don't travel in the same political circles. You know, certainly in the U.S., I mean, it's, 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 there's a lot of complicated factors uh, at play. I mean, one of them is just the fact that, you know, even if people are familiar in terms of how the Internet works, I think our notion of civic education in the U.S. is pretty dismal, and maybe that's one factor. But there's many other things, too. It's a history of inequality. Uh, it's a tradition of buying into certain types of religious beliefs that have parallels to QAnon. And it's also, at least in the U.S., this is maybe less the case in the Philippines, but in the U.S., you know, I think the mass media conservative uh, marketplace has really played a role in priming a certain portion of the population to buy into you know, some of the uh, kind of conservative beliefs that down the line have proven really useful for Donald Trump to mind when it comes to claiming fraud in the election, for example. So it's the Fox News, Newsmax constellation that works and interacts back and forth with Facebook messaging, Reddit threads, and so forth. It's that whole ecosystem at play that has primed the population for many years and not just when Donald Trump came into office. To sort of question the premise of our conversation here, to what extent can we call these activities repression if they're not backed by state power? Or are we just trying to use, you and I in this conversation, a fancy negatively loaded term to describe what is essentially dirty political campaigning in the 21st century and trying to, to link it to authoritarianism in a way that might not be accurate, given that you know Duterte was democratically elected and he was doing this before he was elected, and Trump was elected, and then he lost and he left office. 
Is it really repression in these sort of backsliding countries, or is that assuming the conclusion, right? We're looking at something that's similar to what authoritarian countries do and say it's authoritarian. Yeah, you know, it's a fair question to push on, and you can argue it a few different ways. My argument, at least in the Philippines, would be that, you know, one, disinformation, these strategies are used as a tool of governance, they're used to enact and advance a particular political agenda. And more importantly, two, they're used in conjunction with traditionally repressive tactics. So what I see is a seamless interaction and an overall strategy being used to take information pollution or disinformation falsehoods and directly tie those into a persecution campaign leading to imprisonment, arrest, and suppression of dissent. So that's why, at least in the, now, I don't know that we've seen that play out to its fullest extent in the U.S. context. One can imagine that prison terms directed against political opponents could be something down the line that populists would try to use in a liberal democratic context. But at least in the Philippines and other countries like the Philippines that are sort of in this illiberal democratic context, this interaction between the traditional and the digital, whether disinformation or otherwise, is, I think, what makes it repression. So, you know, the United States is, at least for now, uh, still in the ranks of liberal democracies, as are a lot of other very powerful, influential countries, despite global backsliding. Uh, what, if anything, can these countries do to halt the rise of digital repression? You know, one of the key points I want to make is that I don't see digital technology as being a one-way street in terms of a continuing level of governments being able to exploit these technologies and no way for citizens to push back. Civil society has found many creative, adaptive ways to use technology against those who are corrupt, authoritarian, and in power to break down and chip away at their rule. And sometimes they have you know, real success in overturning uh, those who are otherwise uh, in place. So you know, a good example is the amount of accountability that can come when people on the ground can document abuses and when those abuses get out in a way that embarrasses, harms, and ultimately politically delegitimizes certain regimes. And that's everything from you know, taking cell phone video of police or security forces in places like Sudan, uh, shooting down and gunning uh, demonstrators. Uh, it's the work that Bellingcat does, an investigative outfit that uses open source techniques to actually disassemble what Russian agents are doing around the world and exposes the corruption of Putin and his regime. But all these grassroots digital tools that citizens now have at their disposal to use, these are really powerful ways to push for ground level accountability and to, you know, on, on a basic level, not let autocrats get away with it in a manner in which they would like. A lot of that sounds like citizen activity, though. Is there any systematic way that democratic states could promote the activities that you're describing? Or is that just like not really possible, given the nature of, of digital repression? No, I think it is. And I think at a government level, there are a number of steps that countries can take. And the, the Biden administration in power, I think they are thinking about. But, but one of them certainly is having liberal democracies come together and recognize and find common ways to push back 
against authoritarian abuses of these technologies. Now, some basic steps that can be taken would be limiting exports, for example, of particularly invasive technologies, you know, spyware tools, censorship blocking tools, uh, things along those lines that oftentimes come from companies based in democracies. That's, uh, you know, an easy step to take and one that is increasingly being contemplated. I want to linger there because that's that's really, really interesting. There are companies in democratic countries that are currently selling internet surveillance technology to like violent repressive regimes, right? That is something that we just sort of all, all of our governments sort of tolerate right now. There aren't restrictions on that in law in places like the US or Canada, France, Britain, like it's just okay. Absolutely. In fact, so this is what's interesting. There are restrictions in law when it comes to selling arms to different countries, but there aren't restrictions in law when it comes to providing surveillance equipment or censorship equipment to bad regimes. Uh, and I'll, I'll name a company, I'll give you a case in point. Bloomberg read a story last year about a Canadian US company called Sandvine that was providing censorship tools to the Belarus government to stop protesters from being able uh, to communicate or even access information. After the story came out, Sandvine became extremely embarrassed. They immediately pulled their technology from Belarus, although they still have it in places like Egypt, I mean, to me, that demonstrates very fully that companies based in liberal democracies are working oftentimes very closely with dictatorships. Uh, another example is NSO Group. They provide spyware uh, that has been implicated in the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, among others. Uh, they're based in Israel. They have a terrible track record. Uh, and yet there isn't really any international law that's enforceable to stop the export of those tools. At the moment, that doesn't really exist. And there's no international agenda for doing that. I mean, there's a growing norm. There's a growing uh, level of pressure to start to construct a legal apparatus that would begin to say, wait a second, if you have human rights abuses that are occurring in here, or there's a reasonable chance that these tools will be used to commission human rights violations, uh, then they shouldn't be exported. I think that's something that will happen down the line, but it, it, we're still a number of years away from seeing that implemented. I mean, it's it's remarkable to me, right? Because we talked at the beginning about how China is not succeeding in exporting its surveillance techniques to other countries, at least not at scale. And yet here we are talking about the countries that are supposed to be, in their own self-estimation, to be the guardians of democracy and freedom internationally. And in these countries, they're the ones whose companies are, are, are taking this technology that's being used to repress people to surveillance apparatuses that then use it to disrupt protest movements, to find uh, individual dissidents, to limit the spreading of critical reporting, right? To, to do all of these things that are functional, and yet we're we're subsidizing this. It's exactly as you mentioned that you know when it comes to these tools, I mean we have to look internally at ourselves in addition to pointing out what other countries like China are doing. Uh, so that's important. But the other thing I was going to say, too, is that, you know, a second way is for democracies to get together and to actually push on specific companies to institute internally more consistent rules about what kind of accountability ought to be in place and what not. So, for example, you know, companies that export what they call dual-use technologies that could be used for defensive purposes or offensive purposes, you know, breaking into someone else's communications, they ought to have ahead of time human rights due diligence. They ought to say, look, what are the chances this technology will be abused? 
What are the potential ramifications and effects? And if those abuses are too probable, then we shouldn't export, period, let alone wait for a government to put an export restriction in place. So to have voluntarily consent-driven principles by companies, to push them to do something like that, and frankly, that can extend to platforms as well uh, in terms of the kind of disinformation that is used, that kind of accountability is another way to, to sort of get at this issue. I mean, when we talk about accountability, right, we've been talking about government so far and what citizens can do to, you know, try to impose accountability on regimes themselves. But there's sort of a third party here that we've glossed over a bit, which is the big social platforms and the big internet companies, right? Not the the small places like NSO Group that are manufacturing very specifically designed surveillance type technology, but Google and Facebook, Twitter. I feel like these platforms should have some responsibility for the way in which they're being used, especially, you know, as you noted in the Philippines, Facebook was the major source of the flood of disinformation that helped Duterte ascend to power. Like, shouldn't they be held responsible or at least start thinking about their own role in what appears to be a very, very effective mass campaign of weaponizing their platforms against democracy? Yeah, I know. I think that's a very valid idea to put forth. And it's certainly one that people like Maria Ressa, who are squarely in the sights of these governments, it's what they're, they're arguing for, that there should be a greater push. And, you know, to be fair, in the Philippines, Facebook has done a, a better job after a lot of pressure because of people like Maria Ressa who have sounded the alarm. They recognize that they have to do more or at least try to do more in places like the Philippines. So that is starting to happen. But then what about Ethiopia? You know, what about all the other countries where they're not doing anything? It sort of seems to be a bit of a whack-a-mole problem where Facebook, if they get enough uh, pressure from the outside, will react, will put in more content moderators, will kick out, uh, you know, more bad actors. But you really have to almost like put together a sustained campaign in order to incentivize the company to do so. And then the flip side is that you also have coming from governments themselves more pressure for these companies to censor content that they don't like to see, as we're seeing in, in India, as we're seeing in Turkey, as we're seeing in Uganda. So you have a little bit of both in terms of the pressure that's taking place, which I think you know kind of just underscores the bottom line that these companies just are ill-prepared to deal with the geopolitics of what their platforms actually are leading to. Uh, there's an interesting question there of, of ill-prepared or disinterested. Right, because you could say that Facebook, you know, just is scrambling and reactive and doesn't really have a systematic policy, all of which is true. But you could also say it's not really in Facebook's interests to have a systematic policy. They don't want to limit people using their platform and they don't particularly care if their platform is being used and twisted to undemocratic ends. It's not their problem. You know, it, it suggests to me that there's a more fundamental mismatch here, right? These corporations functionally have to be the stewards of not just speech and political activism inside the United States where they're based, but, but globally. That is a responsibility that is incredibly significant. As your book details, right, the fate of democracy in certain countries can quite literally hang in the balance here. And yet you have people in charge whose primary incentive is to make money for themselves. It just doesn't seem like a state of affairs that's likely to produce good outcomes in the long run. It's extremely uh, disturbing. I mean, if you're essentially looking at a privatized public square, 
that is being used to make fundamental decisions about how people will live and how politics will operate. And yet the operators, the moderators of the public square have very different incentives than promoting democracy, you know, promoting the public interest. Not to like go over the arguments that we all know, but that if revenue is your top objective and if promoting the type of content that brings the most revenue happens to be anti-democratic, up until now, for the most part, that's been a fine trade-off that these companies are willing to accept. Even if you get more anti-democratic information, as long as the profit and revenue comes in, that's tolerable, except when so much public pressure comes in that then action is forced, which is what we're seeing in places like the Philippines. Well, that's not really structurally a sustainable model for democracy. I mean, it is a sustainable model in terms of keeping profits rolling in, but it actually doesn't make sense if you care about human rights and civil liberties and preserving an information environment that is going to lead to a healthy democracy. So that's the conundrum that we're sort of faced with. Yeah, and and by the time they act, it's often too late, right? As you say, Duterte is extremely popular in the Philippines, and maybe some of that is genuine, like there really is something he's tapping into in Philippine politics. And I, I don't want to deny that or downplay it or say, you know, it's, it's all manufactured consent. But at the same time, a lot of it is manufactured consent, but the consent has already been manufactured. Right, Facebook can try to go backwards and be like, we're going to limit what people say on our site. We're going to try to do fact checks, whatever it is that they're trying to do. But they can't unring the bell that rang in 2016. It's already done to the point where it seems difficult to imagine him being toppled in the foreseeable future. And that's just what happens to democracy, right? When an autocrat centralizes their power, you can't say, oh, sorry, take backs if you're Facebook. That's right. And you have also just the network effect as well. So all the influencers who are tied to Duterte with their millions of followers, even if you were sort of to kick out one or two, I mean, you've created this ecosystem, this constellation of actors who are constantly espousing Duterte's agenda. So how do you put the genie back in the bottle after it's been let out in that way? And after you've had five years of Duterte's rule that's only consolidated these forces to begin with, I mean, at this point, the deck is really stacked against those who would push for a very different liberal democratic agenda. It's hard to do that. It's not as interesting for people to click on, and they don't have the same level of followers as the illiberal counterparts who follow Duterte that they have. It's a stacked deck. That's the problem. Okay, so this conversation has been pretty depressing so far. I'm wondering maybe if there's something, you know, a little light at the end of the tunnel here, because I've thought before, and I've written this in an article, that there's something about the way that social media works that makes it intrinsically favorable to repressive governments or at least dishonest, undemocratic political factions. Because if you're a democratic political party, you don't want to systematically lie. That's breaking the democratic bargain. But it's really, really easy to spread misinformation on the internet, and it's really, really hard to correct it. And so when we're talking not even about the surveillance part of digital repression, but simply the flooding the web with misinformation, it just – one side is structurally disadvantaged, and that's the pro-democracy side. But a second ago, you were suggesting it, it might not be so dire. It, it really is possible to counterprogram right, and develop – and adapt, if you're a protest movement or the Democratic Party in the United States, to adapt to the problem of misinformation being used to attack you. So am I wrong here? Is it just that people haven't come up with it yet and there's a response? Or, or do you see places where people really have figured out 
effective ways of neutralizing the repressive elements of the internet? It's hard to know where to come out, you know, whether to remain pessimistic or to sort of look to, you know, different places where there have been movements and, and pushes back against, you know, authoritarian uses of technology in this way. I mean, I will say just, you know, because I think it's important to say this, is that I don't feel optimistic about where social media is going. And I think any, most U.S. citizens who care about their information environment and who hate to see the polarization occurring have to feel pretty cynical about where things are occurring. And that a large part of that uh, is due to the level of disinformation that is awash currently in the United States. So I'm approaching it from like a little bit of a perspective where things don't seem great here at home. So how are we to sort of look abroad and say, well, we can do better? Uh, you know, nonetheless, like I, I, I do think there are ways to break, you know, the information stranglehold uh, that dictators have. You know, I think that, you know, we have seen different cycles where protest movements and mass mobilization, whether it's Hong Kong protests, uh, whether it's the continued ability of opposition members in Myanmar to push back against the junta that's in place there, whether it's, you know, what's occurred in terms of the democratic transition in Sudan, you know, people have found ways to adapt, to come together and to push back uh, against some of these uh, abuses that are occurring. That ultimately, when it comes to autocrats, they have one fundamental thing going against them that matters, which is that they don't have the consent of the governed. And even if they can buy time for a little while, like the rulers in China have done, because they give economic growth and people in exchange give away and allow for their political freedoms to be restricted, I don't think for the long term that bargain really works out well for citizens. I think over time, they get tired and frustrated of the corruption that ensues and their lack of ability to actually have a say in their lives. And so I do have hope that over the long term, Citizens can overcome through different adaptive strategies these disinformation propaganda techniques. But it's hard work. I can't say that we found a magic solution yet. And, you know, there will be many more struggles to come uh, in the years ahead uh, before we start to see the tides reverse uh, in a more democratic direction. Stephen, thank you so much for talking to me. Really, it's been great. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics... Send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. Current Podcast is back with an exciting new season featuring marketing executives from the world's most influential brands. Tune in to hear what's driving conversation in the fast-moving world of digital advertising with unique insights from brands as diverse as Hilton, Instacart, Moderna, Major League Soccer, and more. 
And in this presidential election season, the current explores what a national political advertiser like the National Republican Senatorial Committee and a major CPG brand like Hershey can learn from each other. Listen in and subscribe to The Current at thecurrent.com or wherever you get your podcasts.